great to be here today. Um, it feels a bit strange because I've been at Lancaster for six weeks, so um, sort of introducing myself as Chris Bade, Lancaster University still feels a little bit strange at this moment in time. But um, as Kate said, um, we've known each other for about 18 months. Um, we met through a course that was funded by Offer um, for WP practitioners to kind of take their first tentative steps into the field of research. Um, they came up with uh, a quirky little um, soundbite of pracademic, which I don't think took off that well. Um, and I certainly don't identify as that. But, um, you know, um, basically um, that was kind of how we met. Kate was, and still is, um, my mentor um, in terms of um, the paper that I'm going to talk about today, um, which started out um, as well, it was originally it was about the, the blurred lines um, between recruitment and um, widening participation. Quite quickly, I realised that I'd be a poor substitute for Robin Thicke. So then I changed <laughs> the title to Blurred Boundaries, um, encouraging greater dialogue between student recruitment and widening participation. And then I've subsequently changed it again to sort of the title that you see um, in front of you now. And I recognised um, a lot of the things that Ian was talking about, about kind of that period, really, um, and the sort of transition, I suppose, from the new Labour administration to the coalition, and then what we've got now. Um, and I wear my politics probably quite badly on my sleeve sometimes. Um, and you don't meet many people from Liverpool who aren't sort of towards the left anyway. Um, so um, my background, I suppose, um, I've worked in WP outreach and recruitment um, over the past decade. So I started out working as um, an intern in the widening participation team. At Liverpool, working with primary schools. Um, some of you might have met my um, highly esteemed colleague, Professor Fluffy. Um, no, people are looking at me. Um, professor Fluffy was a female professor of engineering, a purple football basically that you used to take into primary schools and promote um, HE. Um, I've often been mistaken for Professor Fluffy. <laughs> um, I then moved to Edge Hill University and worked there um, largely in sort of student recruitment, but that university was very much um, a university, a bit like, I suppose, Newman, um, that kind of stemmed from a teacher training college, ostensibly recruited students from widening participation backgrounds, but um, we're very clear, I suppose, when I worked there, we don't do widening participation in that kind of, um, what's the word, altruistic sense that like the likes of Liverpool um, like to sort of harp on about. Um, and then I worked um, on collaborative outreach programmes. Um, so the NNCO and NCOP programmes that were funded by HEFKI and I managed both of the two sort of um, kind of incumbences of that in Greater Merseyside. And then I've obviously now moved to Lancaster. My role at Lancaster is outreach and student success manager, sort of implementing and developing a whole life cycle um, kind of approach really to um, widening participation. So that's sort of um, an introduction um, to me. Um, kind of what prompted me really to do my research, um, it was very much driven I suppose by 
I guess the frustration really having worked in the sector for the period of time that I had in the roles that I had and kind of obviously recruitment and WP I think have become increasingly blurred really um, in the time that I've worked in the sector. Um, certainly at Liverpool um, the, the notion of student recruitment and widening participation having a conversation for many years was kind of unfathomable um, and it's sort of like the elephant in the room really. We meet once a year maybe to kind of review schools lists and set a few events that we do together and then we'd meet again the next year and have exactly the same discussion um, and that happened sort of for about five years really. Um, I was also involved and still am involved in NEON but I previously acted as group chair for HALOA which is the Higher Education Liaison Officers Association um, and I was the group chair in the Northwest and HALOA tends to be um, a collection of I suppose student recruitment professionals. Um, I'm currently an exec member for NEON which I guess tends to be made up more of colleagues working within widening participation and outreach. There's a shared membership base, there's a lot of expertise that colleagues I think in the two organisations share but again um, they don't really talk to each other. Um, we are working towards that at the moment because, um, you know, obviously having been involved in Haloa previously, um, I'm sort of setting in motion conversations between the two organisations. And I think, you know, that can be beneficial because one of the things that I'll talk a little bit more about in my research is I was very much, you know, I'm, I'm kind of proud of the work that I do in WP and outreach, but... I think we can, as practitioners, learn from recruitment colleagues as well. I don't think it's kind of we know everything and they're the, the dark arts practitioners that maybe I wanted to um, uh, sort of. Also prompting me to do this research was the joint strategy that um, Hefke and Offer um, worked on together, which Ian referenced before. And this is me, I suppose, being a little bit provocative. You know, this document sort of advocated greater partnership and collaboration at every level. And, you know, I, you know, it's a bit of a rhetorical question, isn't it, really? I, I don't think we are at that point at this moment in time. Whether we'll ever get there remains to be seen. But that was kind of what promoted me to do the research. So what I wanted to do, um, really, through the article and through the paper, was kind of begin a conversation, I guess, really, because... Um, as I say, the experience that I've had sometimes, the two functions often work within an institutional context, sometimes within similar schools, similar spaces, similar environments, and they can be, I think, mutually supportive. So they were the questions that I sort of was looking to ask, really. Um, the second one of which there, I guess, really is what prompted me to do the research, because... Um, about two years ago, I was approached by a researcher at Bournemouth um, for the first time to take part in a focus group. And it was really interesting because I sort of, along with people that I worked with at Liverpool and had done for about five years, was involved in uh, this focus group about what my motivations were around working and widening participation. And it was the first time that I'd ever heard these people talk about their motivations as well, even though I work with them day to day. And it got me thinking, you know, why don't we do this more as practitioners? Why don't we engage with research, the research community more? And why don't 
why isn't policy informed by those two things a little bit? Um, obviously, the role that I've got now at Lancaster um, is very much on an operational level, kind of trying to implement and develop a life cycle process. And I think obviously recruitment and WP are a big part of that. Um, so they were the kind of questions that I wanted to cover. So um, those of you that are kind of um, into music like I am might recognise the lyrical reference there, Talking Heads. Um, basically, um, that quote was inspired by um, Les Ebden when I saw him present um, at a conference about 18 months ago where he critiqued the WP community as being not very reflective. And as um, somebody who did a PGCE, was a teacher, and kind of was inspired through doing that course to always be reflective in terms of what I did, I got a bit offended by that, really. Um, I'm easily offended. Those of you who know me will probably know that. Anyway. Um, so I kind of disputed that, but then when I kind of began to research into the sort of the policy and the background behind it i realized that like i probably wasn't as reflective as i actually thought i was so i'm of the era that i started work under aim higher and um, that was when i was kind of like that junior member of staff going into primary schools with the purple fairball and um i thought widening participation was very much like a new labor thing i suppose but then as I sort of charted back, I realised that it wasn't and that like discussions about things like linking the industrial strategy and productivity and getting more people from working class and non-traditional backgrounds into university have been discussed for a lot longer than perhaps I gave credence to. So um, that kind of real sort of did, you know, sort of, you know, um, back up what Les was saying, I suppose. Um, after I've done, like, did the research into the policy context, I wanted to try and apply it in, you know, today's landscape. And what my research kind of highlighted is that, you know, again, it's not rocket science really, but the universities that are sort of succeeding at the moment, I feel, and that are being successful are thinking in this idea of the student life cycle. So I went to speak to um, the Vice-Chancellor at Edgehill, my former institution, John Cater, and he sort of said about how they were doing a student journey in their heads 15 years ago, but it's really only sort of in recent years that it's began to be described in that sort of term. What I also found interesting from the interview that I did with him was that he very explicitly in the interview that I sort of did with him Reference the idea that student journey isn't like a three-year um, project. It's something that you work with a student and their potential um, at an early age and support them, you know, beyond graduation, really. Um, I found that slightly ironic in some ways, though, given that, like, when I worked at Edgehill, the idea of that um, didn't really translate into reality. Um, but, you know... There's a lot of shared expertise, I think, sort of, and what I guess I came to in terms of the, the kind of conclusion is that this sort of silo mentality that I've seen in some of the institutions where I work, but also in the collaborative context, you know, in terms of um, when we re-established the partnership under NNCO, it was much different to the conversations that we were having um, under AIM Higher. And I think some people look back 
and aim higher through very rose-tinted glasses. You know, I, I don't think we were always collaborating on everything effectively, but I certainly think that that sort of institutional um, loyalty perhaps was left at the door a little bit easier when certainly when we started talking um, in the NNCO here and it was colleagues at John Moores and Liverpool who began that conversation um, when others came into that they sort of really did exhibit sort of like almost um, I don't know opposition to the idea of collaboration you know they were very firm on what we could collaborate on and what we couldn't collaborate on and I think I was a bit naive really back then that you know getting the likes of Chester, Edgehill and Hope in the room together and then expecting them to sort of go oh yeah let's do everything together when very much they are competing aggressively for the same students it was perhaps a bit naive on um, my part. So how I went about doing my research, um, basically as I say I wanted to kind of get insights really from people who I felt were quite knowledgeable about this sort of um, issue and so I used my networks that um, I've got through Haloa and through Neon to kind of identify a sample of people. Um, I did an initial survey and I was conscious again to do this um, across both England and Wales because I was interested in whether the um, fact that Wales was regulated and had a different sort of funding structure, whether the um, sort of outcomes were, were different there. Um, I then, I did two main focus groups, one which was with colleagues who were involved in collaborative outreach in the northwest of England. Um, so they were very much widening participation practitioners and um, then the other was with um, colleagues through Haloa and they were obviously very much student recruitment professionals and kind of the, in the interesting thing there was you know kind of some of the contrasting responses that they came out with. One thing that I think um, as I've done my sort of updated um, resubmission this week really stood out was um, the only people who actually talked in terms of a life cycle who I interviewed were recruitment people, you know, recruitment professionals. Um, even though it's kind of a thing that was developed, I suppose, under a WP banner, they very much talked in the terms of like the UCAS process and sort of all of that sort of thing. So that was just an, an interesting thing I thought that came out of that. Um, the type of institution that I spoke to, I think, obviously is important to, to factor in. Going back to some of the things that Ian talked about and having worked in Russell Group post-92 um, and now, I guess, um, what was the 1994 group. Widening participation, access, outreach, whatever kind of fashionable label you're putting on it at the moment, um, is different within the institutional context. And so I tried to get a cross-section of um, sort of representatives from different institutions and different types of institution. The overarching sort of um, response was that the two functions should and could be able to collaborate together. Um, how was perhaps the issue? Um, and I think that was something that probably, you know, I think probably needs further exploration. Um, 
you know, 90% of the people that I spoke to sort of said that they felt that student recruitment and widening participation could work together in an institutional context. What I particularly found interesting was those who said no and why and kind of what the sort of explanations were between those two things. So the idea that, you know, there's a need for clearly defined roles. Um, I think one of the quotes that sticks out from my focus group was that a lot of academic colleagues often misinterpret um, WP as proxy for recruitment. And I think, again, the policy landscape's probably added to that a little bit. Um, I was also interested in this part about kind of combining different processes into one department. And I've seen that and actually managed that process, I suppose, when I worked at Edge Hill, where um, the university um, decided it wasn't going to continue with the AIM Higher team. Um, but they wanted to continue maybe with some of the projects that they were doing. And uh, I sort of was given the task of undertaking that, I suppose, change my, I'm not a kind of management theorist but I guess it was change management really and sort of telling people um, oh you're probably going to be made redundant but like let's look at like kind of how we're going to sort of maybe you know take some of these things and make them positive um, yeah so that was quite an interesting uh, experience I suppose good first taste of management um, to be fair so um, well again the challenges people recognize these um, Impartiality, you know, it came up time and again in the discussions and how, um, and it resonated with me, I suppose, as kind of the collaborative network manager. I'd always be um, sort of saying to colleagues in steering groups, you know, well, I don't work for the University of Liverpool, but um, quite often people didn't seem to understand that and would sort of say, well, you do, you're based there, so you have a loyalty to that institution. And I guess now, having come away from that, we were acting in that institution's interests in some ways. And certainly under NNCO, I'm sorry, NCOP, when there was perhaps more money involved, um, the institution became more actively interested in what we were doing and what we were spending the money on. And that's possibly why I work at Lancaster now. Um, so um, also, you know, kind of the idea of what WP means with an institution. And again, sort of, I've worked at three or four universities. Um, it means different things at different universities, I suppose. It's quite a sort of simplistic way of looking at that, um, but I think it's very true, and it certainly resonated as Ian was talking earlier. So there were kind of themes that began to emerge, really, in terms of the responses from colleagues, um, both in terms of the initial responses to my survey and then the more kind of thorough discussions in interviews and focus groups. And I grouped them together under sort of four um, banners. Collaboration at pre-entry level, um, which I'll come on to explore in a bit more detail. Having lived through that process, um, uh, aim higher and NCO and NCOP have got quite strong opinions on that as well. Um, the whole idea of you know the growth of a marketplace, we talk a lot about the marketization in higher education. I think again it's something that has developed as a consequence of policy um, over the past sort of decade. What I was particularly interested in was how individuals, institutions, partnerships interpret policy and apply it within their context. 
Um, I found that very interesting what you said earlier about how some of the people that you interviewed were in a kind of two mile radius of, of where we are today. Um, having worked on NNCO and NCOP and heard things like, oh, um, well, in Merseyside there's this or there's in Cumbria there's this. Have you ever been to Cumbria? I doubt it, you know, sort of. The idea that Cumbria is a cold spot in higher education, having worked there, often used to kind of interest me because it's a place where, well, there's not that many people, then there's, by extension, not that many young people. There's some massive employers that offer apprenticeships, Sellafield, BAE Systems. So the idea that it's a cold spot of higher education, it might sound like it, but the, you have to understand the local and the, the locality, and I sometimes think that that's missed um, within sort of national policies and projects that um, I've worked on, certainly. And this idea of a student life cycle approach and how we're moving towards it as well. So um, this was a quote that came from um, the focus group that I was involved in. And again, people might recognise um, this from their time of working within widening participation and student recruitment. Um, as I say, this is probably informed by my experience of starting out working on the primary project with Prof Professor Fluffy and forever then kind of having the piss taken out of me when I went to work at Edge Hill that I used to go into primary schools and do nice fluffy things. Um, whereas, you know, me and my kind of recruitment era here with my tie on, I was aggressively taking market share off of the universities and that's mission critical to the business of the university. Um, now, I disagree with sort of the idea that doing interventions at primary level is a nice thing to do. It is a nice thing to do, but it's also got an outcome as well. You know, the idea that we used to just go in and talk about primary school and there was no outcome, I think is flawed. What the difficulty has been is that we've struggled to sort of demonstrate the evidence. Um, forever hearing when I go to these conferences, um, there's lots of anecdotal feedback, but you know, for example, um, a colleague that I worked with in Merseyside on AIM Higher on a project that um, took a group of young people from San, um, Chilwell, which is a suburb of Liverpool, to San Diego. Okay, so they went to San Diego for um, a week, basically. Unfathomable, really, I suppose, in some kind of cultures now that that happened. Um, it was a transformative experience for the young people. And I think what I'm sort of getting at here is that my colleague, Paul, um, keeps in touch with these students, okay? So he periodically will go for lunch informally with them, sort of 10, 15, when was it, 2005? Last time you, Liverpool were in the European Cup final, which they are now as well. So, um, yeah, it was quite a while ago. Um, that's why I'm in a good mood today. Um, and he still meets up with them periodically. And I went for lunch with them about six months ago. And out of 20 participants, 18 of them went on to university. Now, that's what we need to capture. And also, you know, on the Professor Fluffy side of things, I was always hearing student ambassadors at Liverpool saying, 
I remember you, you came into my primary school with Professor Fluffy. Again, something we need to capture, we never did. The life cycle thing might help with that. I'll go off on tangents. <laughs> but um, again, this is something that probably touches up, I suppose, on what um, Ian was talking about before, how both recruitment and WP, you can apply this really, I think, to both, but it's like a function that's carried out by people in universities spread across different areas. And this was a colleague, Ian McGarry, who's the Information Advice and Guidance Manager at Greater Manchester Higher, and he described it as the tension of the moment. And um, Ian, like me, is probably, um, he won't mind me saying this, um, someone who's kind of quite cynical towards some of these things. He's probably informed by experience and frustrations of years of um, sort of working in this area. But what I sort of challenge there is the idea that is this attention or is it an opportunity? So again, through my involvement in NEON for many, many years, we've talked about wanting to work with students holistically. So when they turn up to university of choice, they often sometimes get handed over maybe to student services. The life cycle process and what I'm involved in at Lancaster is trying to change that. And I think that's a really positive thing. And in terms of kind of the evidence base, that can really help with that because, you know, it, it, it sort of brings to the fore these success stories and stories I think are really important. The point here, I think, goes back to, again, something that we talked about um, and we'll probably continue to talk about throughout the rest of the day. This idea of a state of flux where the definition and what recruitment is, what constitutes recruitment, what constitutes outreach, what constitutes WP. Um, I, even though it's in my job title, I'm not fond of the word outreach, really, because I think it can be misinterpreted and misrepresented. Um, to mean lots of different things. Example of that, you know, academic colleagues at Lancaster um, will maybe sometimes work with a school in the independent sector. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, when somebody speaks to them about their work, they're doing outreach. I am doing outreach, I'm going into a school, but you're not doing widening access or widening participation. And I think that that sometimes, again, it's probably changing and evolving, but it's something that I definitely recognised um, from my career. The fact that I think we were struggling in the focus group to kind of define what widening participation means goes back again to the point that I thought was very interesting in your presentation about, you know, um, is it an appropriate term? You know, why again, something that I read as part of my research um, I'm not as good at maybe like referencing people. That's the what we're evolving towards at the moment. Um, but you know, um, it was kind of that participation hasn't been widened. It's been maybe increased, which I thought was quite an interesting point. Um, the fact that we're sort of struggling and talking about this, I guess, shows that you know we are in this kind of moment now. And this is something that I took from Spa, which is um, not the supermarket um, uh, the support and professionalism in admissions um, which again I went to one of their conferences um, this sort of seems to happen you go to conferences of an organization that seems to be interesting and then the government scrap it and um, I, I wonder why really um, but this was something that I think it was Dan Schaefer presented at a conference that I went to that 
interested me really because um, as a WP practitioner, I didn't really think it was sort of reflective, wholly, of kind of what I was doing. I felt it was very um, recruitmenty. You know, it, it sort of makes sense in some ways, but in others, I found it maybe a little bit simplistic. But I thought, you know, it's interesting. So. Then I sort of tried to apply it to like what I would deem as kind of a life cycle approach. Um, and I've been called many things before. Um, utopian, um, idealistic, um, but having worked particularly on the NNCO and NCOP projects, a hell of a lot of money went into these programs. Um, and if you look at that, compared to sort of the level of investment in aim higher why couldn't we have worked in this way why couldn't we have started working with young people in um disadvantaged communities and again i don't like that label but you know type of places where i grew up heighton it's like a suburb Liverpool. Um, my girlfriend is uh, a manager of a children's center um, and she's forever telling me stories about how um she's from the world so she's posher than me um <laughs> but you know how kind of um the young people's parents are hugely disengaged in the children's center and how traits are sort of beginning even to set in at the age of sort of two three attitudes towards education and learning you know kind of that it's pointless or there's no support from the family. They don't see the value in education. Now, as I say, Professor Fluffy had its mockers and its detractors, but the idea of, um, we called it sowing the seeds, you know, the idea of going in to year five and year six and just presenting in quite a light touch way. Um, I'm from the same sort of area as you. I've gone to university and this is how it's affected my life. Not sort of saying that go to university and your life can be transformed, but you know, kind of saying that it's accessible to you and just sort of promoting some of the language around this, I think. The point I'm getting at here as well, um, where I say it's informed by experience, um, obviously um, I'm quite sort of IT illiterate, so you know you'll notice there that there's the Shaping Futures logo and the NCOP logo, and also the Lancaster logo. So you know that kind of sort of you know shouldn't really be there, but it kind of is helpful in terms of what I'm kind of coming on to talk about because NCOP as a project, if those of you that are unfamiliar with it, you know it's a project around sort of widening participation, but really it's a recruitment project because it's sort of taking people who have achieved a certain level and sort of saying go to university and we will support you. It's also very interesting that it starts at year nine which having managed two collaborative programs is probably the worst time at which you can start talking about collaboration because that's really where the universities very much begin to see things in a competitive prism and sort of you know this idea of aggressively taking market share off other institutions. I go back to like one of the first discussions that we had um, within the um, NNCO project about sort of targeting of schools and which schools we were going to work with 
and one institution um, that I won't name sort of said that well that's very that's um, commercially sensitive data that, that you um, are asking us for and I'm not prepared to give you that. Um, the point again that sort of was reinforced in the focus group in the context of Manchester, um, my colleague Jamie sort of said that um, basically again she'd encountered very similar issues around sharing of data and a sort of you know unwillingness to share that but by and large you know in Manchester they don't really have schools that have sixth forms so they have a lot of sixth form colleges and FE colleges that essentially are the providers of you know students to the local universities all the universities know that these are kind of their key feeders but they won't tell each other that and they won't share that information but it doesn't take a genius to work that out that they that they're all that they're all sort of in that area in Merseyside it was slightly different I think as I say the fact that we brought Chester um, and Edge Hill who are kind of almost peripheral figures in the city region you know um, have crossover into North Wales and to Lancashire you know again they were very territorial and I think Chester particularly got involved in the partnership because they wanted to um, grow their kind of influence and uh, you know um, recruitment profile in Merseyside so as I say that's kind of my vision I suppose of, of what success would look like and um, what I've found well I think it helped me to get the job um, at Lancaster so thanks Kate and um, this is kind of what I think I'll be looking to sort of implement really at the institution. The idea, I think that I just spoke on the, co the phone to a colleague from Manchester, an academic this morning, whose research is all around key stage one to three. And again, why aren't we having that conversation as practitioners with people who are going into these schools where it's an area of need or an opportunity area um, to put the governmental spin on it, um, you know, it puzzles me really. I was at a conference um, about a year, um, six months ago, sorry, where there were two representatives essentially from. Well, it's all part of the Department for Education now, isn't it? But there was somebody from the Opportunity Areas Project and somebody in the DFE who had um, the brief of widening participation or support and widening participation. Evident, they'd never met each other. They'd never talked to each other. They had no real awareness of what each other was doing or should be doing. Why, you know, puzzles me again a little bit. So in terms of my conclusions, like I say, um, sorry, I'm just going to Students as consumers is a phrase I've heard too many times, but um, students are basically very much demanding um, consumers. I was at Manchester yesterday speaking to a colleague there and a lot of the things he was talking about, he's doing a project around the attainment gap um, for BAMA students. And a lot of the things that he sort of picked out from focus groups, I could recognize, you know, from the time I went to university. Now, it's an anecdotal story, but I thought it was quite funny, but quite telling as well. So I'm gonna tell it. I did a PGCA at the University of Nottingham, um, undergraduate Sheffield Hallam. So basically, um, I was a, quite an able student in, um, I guess, a disadvantaged area. 
Um, the reason I ended up going to Sheffield Hallam um, basically is that I went to watch uh, Liverpool in the UEFA Cup final um, the m evening before I had one of my final A-level exams and so I got an E in it and I'd been predicted to get um, a B in all my subjects and it sort of took my tariff down from what would have got me into Sheffield which was my first choice and I ended up going to Hallam. I had a great time and it was fantastic but I guess I didn't achieve my potential as teachers might have it then i went to nottingham and i guess all of the people that were on my course as a postgrad weren't like me and i didn't feel a sense of belonging to the university in the same way that i did at hallam and i ended up um, then doing a pgc at the same university and i was very clear from doing that that i didn't want to be a teacher by the end of it um and so I went to see my tutor towards the end of the course and I said to him, you know, I'm not going to go into teaching. Um, and, you know, in that way, it, that's a shame, you know, if you've thought about other ideas. Um, so, yeah, I have. Um, I might go and work in primary education or I'd like to work with young people in some context. And um, I talked about this yesterday. I had totally forgotten about it, but it's dead funny what he said. Um, Obviously, I'm from Liverpool, and so he said, um, well, being from your background, um, there's lots of ways that you could probably engage with young people. Um, and I sort of was a bit puzzled as to what he meant. And I went, well, what do you mean, Gary? And he said, probation. Um, <laughs> now, that's really offensive. Um, and it sort of made me think yesterday when I was talking about some of the, I suppose, institutional racism that BAMA students encounter, that some of these prejudices that people have, you know, I, I didn't complain about that, and I, I found it quite funny, really, more than anything. But Matt, who I was speaking to yesterday, went, why didn't you complain about that? Well, it wasn't the done thing for me. You know, I'm not going to complain about Dr whatever, I'm not going to name him, um, am I? Um, but now students being consumers are going to complain and, um, you know, that sort of, yeah, anyway. Mm -hmm. So the other kind of um, conclusion, I suppose, is that, that, again, it goes back to some of the things that Ian covered, I suppose, in his presentation, that we need to sort of change the focus of what we do as um, widening participation practitioners. I've already talked about, I think, engagement sort of needs to begin earlier and be sustained. I think this point's really um, crucial. You know, chasing fixed-term funding has been, you know, a frustration for me for the past five years in my career. And it breeds instability. So the example I use here is when I was managing the NNCO project, I was asked to write a sustainability paper three months after getting the job. It's like, we don't know what we're doing yet. How can we sustain it? Um, so, you know, it kind of chasing that funding has been unhelpful, I think, in terms of, embedding cultures particularly around things like evaluation which has always been the kind of million dollar question um and i do think as i say i'm committed to collaboration you'd probably recognize that from the things that i've done but it should only you should only collaborate with adding value to what already happens and i think NCOP is an example really and nnco the predecessor they don't always add value. There's a lot of, from a school's perspective, particularly in Merseyside, you know, the conversation, I'm looking at Jaren because we, we had a conversation about shaping futures, which was my previous project. 
and the relationship that John Moore's had with schools and how that became blurred because this new thing that wasn't the University of Liverpool that was based at the University of Liverpool was kind of going in and doing a very similar thing to what colleagues of John Moore's were doing. What's the point in that? Why, why, why wouldn't we be better served engaging with um, an audience who aren't getting any support at this moment in time? So they're sort of, and again, I've kind of not really talked about access agreements a great deal, but again, a thing that frustrates me about access agreements is that they set sort of arbitrary targets. So I managed the Mentoring project at Liverpool. Um, it had a target 25 in the first year, which we barely reached, you know, and didn't really do a successful job on the project. Suddenly we have to work with 50 the next year, then 75. Well, let's get 25 right in the first instance before we start thinking about, you know, how we can make it bigger. But this current government have a, an obsession, in my opinion, with measuring things and, you know, sort of everything being able to re report it very quickly. So I think, you know, future collaborative outreach should sort of work earlier but then also you know not not just have arbitrary targets because targets are important but they have to have a purpose i suppose is what i'm saying so that's it um sorry if it was kind of a bit whirlwind in some ways that's just who i am um but yeah i'm happy to take any questions and i hope people found it um useful and maybe interesting thank you very much